1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books Network, um, the East Asian Studies channel. I'm Victoria Lupashko, your host for today. And here we are with Frederick Green, who has graciously agreed to talk to us about his work, Bird Talk and Other Stories by Shushu, Modern Tales of a Chinese Romantic, um, which was just published by Stonebridge Press. So hello, Frederick. How are you?
2: Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very well. (laughs)
1: Great. <laughs> Good. So um, I won't, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to speak as little as possible about this really exciting uh, translation and really exciting book. And I'll just, um, you know, let let you introduce us to it. Um, and I'll just start by asking you to tell us more about your work in general and how you came to this topic and to writing about and translating uh, Shushu's work.
2: Okay, so... You know, this book has been many, many years in the making, and it really grew out of my PhD dissertation, which was on Xu, Xu. And I chanced upon Xu, Xu and his short story, Ghost Love, which is actually the first story in the anthology, Guilian, while combing through the university library at the time for a graduate seminar on Republican period journals. And that was about 15 years ago. And at the time I was still trying to find a good dissertation topic. And once I started to read more of Shu's Xu fiction, I knew that I had found my topic. <laughs> and in my dissertation, I then I, I tried to do two things. First, I wanted to unearth Shushu for Western readers and essentially undertook a conventional author study that analyzed the most significant works and also placed him into the context of his time and his contemporaries, so the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and then post-war period, 50s, um, because nothing really had been done on him at all. Um, now, the other thing I tried to do was to argue that Shushi was a writer who squarely fits into the canon of Romantic literature and whom we need to read within the context of the 20th century revival of Romantic aesthetics. Um, After I got my PhD, I I wrote a number of articles that further explored these topics, but, you know, I always felt that unless some of his works would be made available to a wider readership in English, he would forever remain an obscure Chinese writer, discussed within the ivory tower of modern Chinese literary studies. Um, And then a few years ago, uh, I had the good fortune of meeting two of Xu Xu's children, his son, who lives in Taiwan, and his daughter, who lives in the Bay Area, where I now uh, live and, and teach? Um, and the two administer Xuxu's literary estate. Xuxu Xu himself passed away in 1980. Um, and when I mentioned to them that I really would like to translate some of their late father's stories, they were really excited and very supportive. Um, and so I started to work on the translations. Uh, but only after I got Stonebridge Press and Berkeley interested in publishing them. And I suddenly had a deadline to work with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did, I, did I really spring into action and um, and eventually completed the project during a sabbatical in 2019? And you know what was really fantastic was that my editor at Stonebridge Press, the wonderful Peter Goodman, gave me pretty much cut, blanche as far as the makeup of the book was concerned. You know, I told That's... him that I wanted to present a cross section of Shushu's fiction. Um, but that there would have to be a lot of contextualization for general readers, but that I also wanted to include a scholarly afterwork that spoke to researchers or to readers who really wanted to deep, you know, uh, dig a little deeper. Yeah. And then I yes. said, we needed to reproduce some photographs and documents, and Peter just kept saying, "Sure, we'll make it happen." <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. when the project was almost complete, it was actually Peter Goodman who kind of came up with the, the, the title, which I think is, is really ingenious. Not the first part, you know, Bird Talk and Other Stories by Shushu, That was sort of the easy part. But then the second part, Modern Tales of a Chinese Romantic. You see, all the titles that I had come up with were really convoluted and complex and sounded like, you know, dissertations. <laughs> <laughs> but after reading the manuscript, Peter said that, yeah, Shushu really, you know, is a romantic both in the philosophical, but also the sort of colloquial sense. And he's really a great storyteller who is firmly grounded in the modern era. So how about modern tales of a Chinese romantic? And that's what we ended up with.
1: (laughs) That's great. And there's a, I personally believe there's the art of picking a title. There's some sort of talent that some people have um, to just catch, you know, the essence um, right there. Yes. And I think this is great.
2: Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm very grateful for him. <laughs> to him for doing that. That's great.
1: Yeah. And then, um, so as you mentioned, right, the the book contains an introduction. And then um, short stories and then an afterword where you dig deeper into more conceptual work, into positioning Shushu uh, in a larger, say, critical uh, context. So the the intro, right, it just... Uh, walks us and introduces us right as readers to shushu's Xu life and situates him in the chinese chinese literary and political world um, and it's true that before you know your work and before um, this kind of revival right it's very little you, you can find very little i try to to go on the library's uh, website and search and Yeah, you're right. It was nothing that much, right? So I think the introduction is really good in terms of positioning uh, the author, but also, you know, it would be very useful for students when you teach such a work, right? So um, with that in mind, I was just about to ask you to walk us through the the intro, if possible. Yeah,
2: Yeah. So, you know, Shushi was born in 1908 and died in 1980. And as such, he really lived to see some of the really big social changes and historical events that rocked China in the 20th century. And his fiction, in many ways, closely is tied up with you know, with those events. That's why, from the beginning, I felt that these stories really needed to be well contextualized and placed into the socio-historical context for 21st century readers, you know, like us and our students and, and, and other readers to really appreciate them. But what made his fiction and Xuxu and Xu, the individual so interesting to me is that the ways in which he responded through his fiction to China's ideological upheavals of the 1920s and 1930s, and then the war of resistance against Japan that ended in 1945, and then the ensuing bitter civil war between the communists and the nationalists that led to the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949 and then the national, uh, nationalist retreat to Taiwan and then finally his own exile in Hong Kong are in many ways really unique and at times put him at odds with his contemporaries so um let me talk um about sort of the the three or four big stages in his life really briefly so shushi was born into a you know a declining gentry family when you kind of deal with Republican period writers, you always hear this term, the declining gentry family, you know, a big land-owning family in Ningbo that sort of had fallen on fallen hard times in 1908. And like many of his peers, he received, you know, an early education that was still very much steeped in classical Chinese learning, but he was also exposed to modern schooling and and Western ideas that became more widely accepted during the last years of the Qing dynasty and the early Republican period, so the 1920s. In 1927, Xu Xu was then admitted to Peking University, Beijing, Beida, Beijing University now, which was then the country's leading center for progressive social and political ideas. And he majored in philosophy, and he developed a lasting interest in the ideas of the French philosopher Henri Bergson, who had just won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1927 and who was really all the rage at the time. And um, you know, Bergson's writings on intuition and creativity uh, had a profound impact on, on writers everywhere, especially on European modernists uh, such as Marcel Proust, uh, Virginia Woolf, and also came to really impact Shushu's um, fictional work. And I'll talk a b- little bit more about that later. In 1933, after he graduated, after he was done with his studies, he moved to Shanghai, um, which then really was the uh, cultural and publishing hub um, of China, and you know the most modern and cosmopolitan city. And he began his literary career under the auspices of Lin Yutang, um, a, a very well-known polyglot writer and critic who ran a number of very successful publishing ventures, uh, literary and and cultural uh, journals. And Xu Xu first worked as an editor for a number of of Lin Yutang's journals. Um, Now, unlike some of maybe his more or better known um, contemporaries and and other progressive intellectuals of those years who uh, who supported the leftist or socialist cause, Xu Xu really embraced a distinctly cosmopolitan liberalism and individualism. And he was, you know, in that regard, he was clearly influenced by Lin Yutang, uh, which really renounced violent revolution as a means to a political end. And, um, you know, the story Ghost Love, Gui Lian, um which is the opening story in the anthology, uh, my anthology, um, which was written in 1937, is very much representative of that. It's a modern gothic tale set in 1930s Shanghai in which a first-person narrator relates his encounter with a mysterious woman who claims to be a ghost. And then together, they go on nightly strolls through Shanghai. And the geography of Shanghai plays a really important role um, in the story. And while Ghost Love also touches upon the revolutionary struggles of the 20s and, and 30s and the violence that had ensued um, especially after Chiang Kai-shek's betrayal of his communist allies uh, in 1927, the story is, is really largely skeptical of collective action and, and ideological narratives and is really essentially individualistic. Now, um, Xu Xu then uh, spends a little bit of time in Europe, and this time in Europe, again, has sort of a big impact on his creative work. But then he comes back very quickly when war with Japan breaks out. Um, Uh, And then during the war years, um, you know, much Chinese literature, both of the political left and the right, espoused really patriotic and and, and nationalist narratives that celebrated collective action against, you know, against the the, the enemy. But Xu Xu's fiction and also his drama, he actually also wrote a lot of drama in those years, really kind of explored quasi existentialist themes and and continue to pursue individualism. He wrote a massive serialized novel of love and espionage called The Rustling Wind, Feng Xiaoxiao, which is probably his best-known work. Um, But that would have been way too long to include in the anthology. So instead, I chose this this short story, The Jewish Comet, uh, Tai de Huixian, um, which is also a cosmopolitan spy story set during the war. Um, And that holds sort of a promise of agency in the fight against global fascism. It starts out in Shanghai, where a female Jewish secret agent enlists a young Chinese man for a sabotage mission against Franco's fascist forces in Spain, and then the two eventually fall in love. I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Um, And then finally, in 1950, so this is, you know, after the war, and after the Civil War, uh, and after the People's Republic of China, you know the, the Communists prevail. The People's Republic is founded. Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalists flee to Taiwan. Um, Xu Xu leaves uh, mainland China, um, but he goes to Hong Kong. So he had come under very harsh attack from leftist critics um, already in the 30s, but then you know even even more so in the 1940s. And he knew that he would have to. hear renounce his literary aesthetics if he were to stay in mainland China. Um, And really, um, you know, I think he was unwilling to align himself with, with either of the two authoritarian post-war regimes. Um, And so he decided to remain in colonial Hong Kong, which, you know, ironically is a city he really never felt at home and he never really embraced as his home. Yet it was also in Hong Kong where, um, you know, unhindered by ideological constraints, he produced some of his most significant literary works. And there was also during his exile in Hong Kong that this distinct literary aesthetics that I call, you know, romantic or neo-romantic um, matured and that placed him into the proximity of other Western 20th century neo-romantic writers, uh, maybe especially Hermann Hesse. Um, I, I talk about that a lot in the afterword. And that connects him to a uh, global literary modernity um, that I will talk a little bit more about later. And these neo-romantic tendencies are nowhere more discernible than in uh, the title story of my anthology, Talk, Niao Yu.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, it's also the longest, I think, um, where he takes the, the time and the space to um to develop write the story and develop the theme and um sit with it for for some pages so yeah. that's yeah 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 and you know the the stories do appear to to belong to or can be categorized under specific themes um and you know you you mentioned um tangentially so far Um, For example, nostalgia, right? Or the idea of of being exiled in a way. Um, So what were the themes for you? And uh, what were the uh, aesthetic undercurrents that made these five titles stand out? Um, I gather they are connected in a way to Sushu's literary evolution or his life. But what were the things important to you in choosing these?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, nostalgia is definitely a very important theme, um, and especially in, in the story Bird Talk. Um, you know, Bird Talk start, starts out in post war Hong Kong, where the narrator receives word of the passing of his fiance from many, many years ago. But then most of the story is, is narrated as a flashback and takes the reader back to the pre war you know, to pre-war China and especially the pre-war Chinese countryside where the narrator, um, you know, was convalescing from illness and where he meets a shy and introverted girl who appears to be able to communicate with birds, hence bird talk. Um, and he's intrigued by her unusual talent and offers to school her in conventional subjects if she agrees to teach him bird talk or bird language in return. But... um. His attempts at socializing her, uh, uh, you know, they prove just as futile as her efforts at teaching him her talk. And the only subject the girl uh, excels at is poetry. And in fact, when reading poetry, she experiences the same kind of sublime happiness as when she talks with birds. And then after the two uh, eventually separated, the narrator ends up in post-war Hong Kong, a city that, you know, forever removes him from, the pastoral ideal of pre-war Chinese countryside, but also really, of course, from uh, pre-war China uh, as a whole. You see, Xu Xu's exile in Hong Kong, you know, was not voluntary. So like many other refugees, he had thought that it would be temporary, you know, just a few years at most. Um, And when he left China in 1950, he left behind his wife and his newborn daughter, thinking that they would soon reunite. However, as the Cold War escalated, uh, you know, his exile became permanent and he never saw his wife again. He only, you know, very briefly reunited with that daughter um, just before he he passed away in 1980. She was allowed to, to visit. Um, so he later divorced his wife when it became clear to him or to both of them, I guess, that um, her connection with him really became a political liability, um, you know, the um, and he, you know, he later married again in Hong Kong um, and, he, you know, he had a new family. But this sense of loss, you know, that really must have been overwhelming. Um, and, you know, many critics who, especially, you know, who, who write about diasporic Chinese literature have commented on the fact that nostalgia and, and the yearning for the lost homeland constitutes really the defining characteristic of, of post-war di- uh, diasporic literature in Chinese. And this this literary phenomenon is particularly visible in, in Hong Kong's post-war literature, uh, precisely because most, almost all of those writers, uh, you know, were were exiles who, who had left the People's Republic of China, who had come south to Hong Kong, and hence they're usually referred to as the writers who came south, and Xu Xu was just one of them. But, you know, there were many, many others. So... Um, know, Sima Changfang, Li Huiying, poets like Li Guang, Zhao Zifan, and you know, nostalgia really, I think, is 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 one of the defining um, characteristics of of this this postwar uh, work, especially out of Hong Kong. Um, yeah, so that probably is is I, I think the most most important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, and then you know, it's. Um... I mean, would you say that um, the short stories and nostalgia in general are representative of an entire generation, even um, Su huge generation or, um, you know, because it does it does seem that a lot of uh, of the people you mentioned and, you know, others as well felt of this idea of just going to Hong Kong or going um, to other places temporarily and then they will come back. Um, but then times just changed so much and so fast that even if they were to come back, say, to their the, the places they left from, things would not be actually the same, right?
2: Yeah, very, very much so. Um, you know, um, so, you know, the five stories, um, you know, they span a period of, of about 30 years. So I said that, you know, the selection really is, I wanted to give a cross-section of Shushu's Xu work. So they start in 1937. The last story is published in uh, in 1965. And as such, they offer the reader sort of a, a glimpse really of, of China's turbulent 20th century. And they all represent a different creative period in Shushu's Xu life. So we already said that ghost love is from the pre-war period, the Jewish comet is from the war years, and then Bird Talk, um, you know, Bird Talk is is from the post-war years, this, this period of exile. And then the last story, uh, the fifth story, when Ahang came to a ghosting road um, is from the 60s. And it's sort of about Hong Kong as it developed into the economic powerhouse that we might think of today. But, you know, to get back to your question about this, this idea of, of, of exiles and whether it's representative of an entire generation, um, so I already mentioned that bird talk really engages with the topic of nostalgia for this bygone era, of, you know, a, a world lost, you know, the Republican period. Um, and so there is another story. So the next story in the anthology is a story called "The All Souls Tree" by Ling Shu. Um, and it's likewise a story that is really representative, as you said, of an entire generation of exiles, I think. So this story is actually set in Taiwan uh, after the nationalist retreat to the island uh, following their defeat by Communist forces, um, and um, its topic, this topic of the story, is sort of a death-defying love of a young couple that is separated on account of the Civil War. One of them is back in mainland China, and the female protagonist is is in Taiwan, um, and you know it it, it sort of it. It's quite a tragic story. It's, it's quite beautiful, but it's, it's also, you know, tragic. Yeah. I don't want to spill all the beads. But the story <laughs> re- <laughs> the story really, I think, relates the, this tragedy experienced by, you know, countless Chinese people affected by the political reality of the post-war world order, not least Xu Xu himself. Um, now, what's interesting is that, you know, at the same time, the story of the Old Souls Tree delves into mythical and, and sort of quasi-religious epiphanies that Shushu often used in his fiction to give voice to his, you know, aesthetic convictions that that art, um, you know, can explore sublime or otherworldly experiences that might offer maybe comfort uh, to those grappling with, you know, the pain of loss and and homesickness, really. So, yes, I think... Um, some of the stories, and maybe especially, you know, Bird Talk and and the All Souls Tree, really, I think, would have spoken to, but also on behalf of an entire generation of of exiles. Yeah.
1: And it's also the,
2: um, I'm sorry, um,
1: the... um... Uh, the language element right because you know he does he uses these um religious elements or he uses the the trope of the spy or you know the love uh, there's always some sort of love relationship that is is happening in the in the stories to give voice or to enable some some feeling or some um, some state to come out through his his prose. So I I was fascinated about this idea of the language and how it's not just the written word, but all these almost intuitive, as you said, right, and you can totally see um, the philosophic influence on his work, um, right, the intuitive type of communication or longing or, you know, finding a vocabulary for for um for oneself that comes um out of um Shushu's work and then you know that thinking of that i just was wondering about what the process of choosing these stories um to translate looked like for you and you know what were the the decisions you took as a scholar
2: and translator when, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um th- th- you know that that's that's a great question um you know even though shushu was s- so prolific he, i mean he wrote so much his you know his collected works uh were you know they 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 numbered 15 volumes and that wasn't even complete uh at, you know when when they were published wow and he's written so many stories especially short stories it was actually quite easy to settle on this selection um uh you know i had to include Ghost Love, Gui Lian, the first story, because it's probably his most famous short work of fiction, the one that really made him a literary celebrity when it was first serialized in 1937. Um, I wanted to include a work from the wartime period. Um, but because his epic, The Rustling Wind, Feng Xiao, this really long novel, was way too long, I mean, that's, um, you know, in Chinese, it's like 600 pages.
0: (laughs) It was serialized
2: (laughs) over an entire year in a newspaper. Um, So that was out of the question. That's why I settled um, on the Jewish Comet. Um, And it's, you know, it's it's a really interesting story, I think, because it also explores the fate of Jews in pre-war and wartime Shanghai, which is another really, really interesting topic and one that, Strangely, only very, very few Chinese writers wrote about. Um, You know, we can talk about that um, maybe a little later. Um, um, Now, Bird Talk (laughs) is my absolute favorite story by Xu Xu. So that had to be included. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it was actually also Lin Yutang's favorite story. So Lin Yutang and Xu Xu stayed close until, you know, Lin Yutang, I think, died first in nineteen. 76 or 7, uh, and then Shushu soon after. So they stayed close. And um uh you know, Lin Yutang really loved the story. And um he he actually trans- sort of he, he made a translation of it, but a very uh free translation. Um and he kind of changed a lot of the cultural elements, which I thought was interesting because he probably thought it wouldn't be appreciated, you know, if it was translated literally. I don't know. Um, so you know, and 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 it wasn't widely distributed. Um, so I thought you know, Burtog really had to be included. Oh, and you know, I only just a few days ago I learned that um, it was also the favorite story of the Taiwanese writer Sun Mao. Oh, uh, this uh, yeah, this, right? This female writer from the um, sort of seventies, eighties, very well-known writer, female writer, and yeah. You know, she—I I did know that she and Shushu um, were very close. She—he he sort of became sort of like a mentor figure to her, and they—you know—they frequently communicated. I think he know knew her father quite well. How interesting! Um, and um, I, I was able to see some of the letters that uh, that she had written to him. So Shushu's um, Xu daughter, um, the one who administers the estate, uh, you know, allowed me to see some of these letters, and she kept mentioning to him how much he lo- she loved the story Burtog. So that was kind of uh you mm-hmm. know really, <laughs> really interesting in retrospect. Yeah. Uh, that um so you know Burtog, I, I figured had to be um included. And then you know the Old Souls Tree um you know the story about uh this this couple separated by the civil war that was actually included um in a Chinese language anthology of um Hong Kong Writers from the 1950s that was edited by Liu Yichang. And I thought it would be, you know, it would be good to include a work that had sort of been canonized in the Hong Kong literary canon already. Um, And then finally, uh, when Ahang came to Gosing Road, the last story um, was really one of the last works of fiction that Xu Shi wrote. And it really depicts a shift in his writing and also I think in Hong Kong literature of the 1960s uh, in that it sort of became um, kind of more <laughs> kind of middle brow appealing to a much wider audience. So the story, you know, published in 1965 is kind of a Cinderella story that describes the fate of a young girl called Ahang, a young woman who is a, uh, uh, she comes from mainland China to work as a maid in a rich person's household um, and then who ends up as the wife of a rich businessman. And the story is narrated through the eyes of these three uh, three poor immigrant friends who are uh, rewarded for their loyalty to Hung by being given a store um, uh, in a newly built Kowloon high-rise. And it's kind of written in a light and, and very colloquial style and it very much resembles the popular radio fiction um, that that was that enjoyed great popularity in Hong Kong in the 50s and 60s. So works of fiction that were really written to be performed on the radio or read out on the radio. Um, or the kind of story that was turned into movies um, by one of the many studios in Hong Kong in the you know, 50s and 60s, the Hong Kong movie industry really takes off. And Xu Xu actually wrote several screenplays in those years um, and was involved in the sort of turning some of his novels into uh, into movies. So I thought this last story, um, which um, I think from a literary perspective might might be a little weaker, but at the same time I think it's really interesting because it it really shows us what sort of you know maybe the Hong Kong the wider Hong Kong reader public reading public um, kind of you know would have craved for. So yeah, that's. That's kind of what motivated the selection. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it's really fascinating. And um, as you were you were describing the last story, it just dawned on me that it's the only one in your anthology where there's a third-person narrator. Um, it's not told from the first-person-involved narrator. So
2: that's a shift, I thought. Yeah, that's actually that's a really, really good point. Um, you know, this first-person narrator is something that you see in almost all of, of, of Xu Xu's fiction. And what's really interesting is that often the narrator, the first person narrator in the stories, you, you almost think of him almost as sort of as a quasi-autobiographical narrator because the narrator re- usually fa- shares a lot of the features of Xu Xu's own biography. And then he's even often called Shu, called Xu Xu, written with the same characters. And I think that's, it's, it's, it's quite deliberate. Um, It's sort of all part of his fictional
0: project. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, and it's also playing a little bit with the readers, right? Because, um, you know, the the fictionalized and the semi autobiography just blend together so well that, you know, you kind of start to guess like, okay, so is this true? Or like, it doesn't matter? Or, you know, so there's some sort of um, very nice interweaving, um, I thought.
2: In yeah, the... yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, um, you know, speaking of of um, interweaving all sorts of threads, um, in the afterword, you mentioned the connection between uh, romanticism, Shushu's work and his tri- trips right to Europe and Japan. And um, I was wondering whether you could expand a little bit more on that connection. Yeah, so
2: Shushu's earliest fiction um from the thirties was really characterized by a very distinct cosmopolitanism and really exoticism um, paired with an emphasis on romance. Um, so there's always a love story. <laughs> and it's what's interesting is that it's often a cross-cultural love story, actually. Yeah. And, right. Yeah. And, and then there's always sort of a sublimation of love. So love really is, 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 is very important in, in, in his uh, fiction. Now in my anthology, I didn't really include any of those sort of very early kind of exotic works, but I briefly discussed them in the afterward, um, as they really already kind of were imbued with this romantic sensibility um, that becomes stronger later on. Now, much of the exoticism drew on his travels uh, to Europe as a young man. So, you know, he said he went to France, he spent time in England, he traveled quite widely, and um, there is a short story that he wrote in 1936. It's called The Goddess of the Arabian Sea, Alabo Hai Um, And, you know, that's really a, a good example of this uh, kind of exoticism. It describes the encounter on board a steamer to Europe between a first-person narrator. Here we have that first-person narrator, the young Chinese cosmopolitan uh, man, and a beautiful Arab woman who claims to be a sorceress. And when she tells him... Uh, a tale of a young goddess who roams the waters they are passing through, the narrator excitedly uh, exclaims, I want to pursue all artistic fantasies because their beauty to me is reality. And then he announces that in this world, there are people who pursue dreams of the real, while I'll seek out the real within dreams. And, you know, here the narrator or, you know, or Shushi, the writer really echoes some of these Brooksonian concepts of intuition uh, that provide artists with the impetus to seek truths and realities uh, beyond the purely mimetic um, and that continue to shape Xu Xu's fictional worlds. You know, this idea that, you know, he's, he's not really interested so much in, in, in reality, especially not sort of the grim and gray kind of social realism no, you know, he's <laughs> he's into dreams and, and and fantasies. Um, and it's precisely this kind of turning away from social realism that really got him into trouble and that he was criticized for later on. So in 1945, um there there's um an essay that appeared that was written actually on Ghost Love, Guilien, um, that was written by a young Marxist critic. Um um, he was called Shi Huai Chi. He then tragically died, I think, uh, soon, or, or even before this, his, his collection of um, criticism was published. But, you know, this criticism, is, I mean, it's scathing. Um, and it really revealed the incompatibility of Xu Xu's idealist aesthetics with the very much utilitarian role art was supposed to play in communist China. So in this essay... Uh, You know, the critic condemned what he called the corrupting and degenerating effects of Shushu's work on upright revolutionaries, claiming that, and I'm quoting here, (laughs) it will invariably cause you to forget the cruel reality of the world, cause you to ignore the hideous scars of our nation, um, uh, uh, lead you to distance yourself from the cruel struggle between old and new that is currently being carried out all around us, Instead, and will invite you to enter an illusionary world, um, and then he advises his readers to throw these works into the cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know what? What the critic clearly has taken issue with was was Shu Xu obvious rejection of and opposition to social realism, um, that really had you know become the predominant mode of the literary left, and that you know, was promoted in earnest and that later became the, you know, the new orthodox uh, kind of way of writing following the the founding of the PRC. And that later then became, of course, socialist realism. Um, But, you know, accessing dreams and illusionary worlds and and alternative spheres of reality really had become central to Shushu's literary quest. Um, And, you know his later stories even more so uh, where this distinction between reality and illusion is, is is sometimes altogether blurred there's another story um that again I, I didn't include it in the anthology it's uh from 1947 it's called hallucination and um uh the story's narrator here meets a painter and the painter uh you know he tells him that he he gazes at his his own s- uh, um, all paintings, and then he's able to access his own past and temporarily relive the happiness that he knew uh, with his now deceased lover. And then the painter insists, um, you know, the, 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 the narrator sort of, uh, you know, he doesn't quite believe what the painter is telling him, but then the painter insists, and again, I'm quoting from the story, he says, illusions and reality are very difficult to tell apart. For reality may consist of the common illusions of the majority, while an illusion can be one person's reality. You see, this deliberate blurring of illusion and reality, as well as past and present, again, echoes very much, I think, the philosophy of of Bergson and, of course, of other earlier Romantic uh, philosophers. And that really encourages the artist to transform reality through art. And that became more and more pronounced in in Xu post-war fiction. And, you know, we've seen this in Bird Talk and, and we've seen it in All Souls Tree. But again, um, it's the kind of work that, you know, <laughs> would not have been allowed in, and wasn't allowed in, in mainland China after 1949. Um, you know, and again, it, it, it was the reason why, why he left and why he had to leave mainland China.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. And um um you know, when I was reading um the the afterword and the, the the critique right of Shushu's uh, Xu work, I was actually thinking it's such an inverted type of um so of course it's critique, right? And at the time, you know, his uh Xu Xu's work, of course, right, was in um direct contradiction with the ideal literary ideal of the time, but you know, if someone would say um, to say a, an author right now that oh you know the readers can actually lose themselves into the writing and can access the dreams through your writing
2: that would be amazing right that would be such a um... I, I completely agree and you know <laughs> when Shushu read this criticism he must have thought yeah that's exactly what I'm doing <laughs> because that's what we need you know we <laughs> Yes, the world is torn, being torn apart, and all these scars are being inflicted on us. Don't we need literature that takes us away from this? And that... but yeah, so such were the times, and of course, you know, something that um, I always try to, to tell my students is that you know, writers in China and intellectuals. Um, you know, had a much more visible role in society. I mean, even today, but, you know, back in the 1930s, you know, there was always this question, well, he was only a writer, you know, who cares? And well, you know, people did care. And of course, yeah. literature did enter, uh, you know, the public uh, public sphere. And, you know, we know that, right, the, Cultural revolution was triggered by a play, you know, a, a play. <laughs> so this idea that, you know, being a writer um, of, 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 of love stories could really get you into very, very serious political trouble, I think is something that, you know, it's difficult for <laughs> 21st century students to, or, or readers or any of us, you know, living in, in, in this country. It's, it's, it's difficult to comprehend, but, you know, it's... It, it was a reality, it certainly was a reality then, and it's still a reality in China today.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And also, it's um, to one degree, um, you know, the fact that we are connected, um, you know, globalization happened and still happening. And, you know, um, you can access everything through the Internet um, doesn't necessarily uh, click with this idea of talking um you know, across transnational canons or talking, you know, with uh, different types of, of literatures across the world and between them. Um, however, right, so Xu Xu did that, and you do mention that his post-war fiction um right quoting contributes to a romantic transnational canon and constitutes a creative engagement with romantic aesthetics that link modern Chinese literature to a global literary modernity. Right. So um, after that, I was um, kind of, you know, thinking of today and connectivity and things like that. But more specifically, um, I was wondering whether you could tell the listeners more about the connection, right? That that specific connection between Chinese literature and global modernity um, that Xu Xu contributed to, um, whether you think was knowing or unknowingly, you know, just, you know, what happened there?
2: Okay. Yeah. So I mentioned that Shushi was very fond of the work of Henri Bergson. And, you know, Bergson was probably the most widely read philosopher of the, the pre-war years. And, you know, he really had a huge impact on modernist and, and neo-romantic artists everywhere. Um, you know, Bergson himself, of course, was an heir to the romantic philosophers of the 19th century um, in that he appealed to the artists to seek for truths and realities beyond the purely mimetic. And, you know, like Schelling before him, uh, who saw the aesthetic act as the highest act of reason, uh, Bergson believed that the artist had an intuitive ability to enter into immediate communication with an object, uh, with nature, with the self. And this belief in art's ability uh, to, to grant access to truths and realities Defined of scientific reason and, and customarily hidden by our everyday experiences greatly appealed to Shushu and you know he frequently explored it in his fiction. Um, you know, maybe most visibly in, in Bird Talk. Uh, but but Xu Shushu's reaction of realism really was quite deliberate and it turned into hostility. Um you know, after literature became more and more politicized in the newly founded PRC and and socialist realism became the only accepted art form. Uh, He wrote an essay in the 1950s, um, and he makes the point that the various contemporary artistic currents, you know, in mid-20th century Europe or or the West, um, but of course, you know, which extended also to, to, to China, like surrealism and symbolism and neo romanticism, existentialism, all came about as a reaction to realism. And again, I quote him, I quote Xu Xu here. He says, humans have a desire for their own minds to explore dreams and illusions in order to obtain a deeper understanding of reality. This is because, again, he believed among the totality of reality a person can grasp there's nothing like the reality that can be engaged with in one's own mind. Even the external world examined by an individual is nothing but the impressions and experiences that exist in one individual's mind. So in the afterward, then, I, I, I look at some of his works like Bird Talk and The All Souls Tree, but also a few others that I didn't translate that really epitomize this kind of literary idealism. And then I compare him to a number of other 20th century neo romantics, especially uh, Hermann Hesse, uh, who had gotten the Nobel Prize in Literature in was it 46 or 1946, I think 1946 or 47, po- the first post-war Nobel Prize, I think. Um, and you know, and and Xu Xu, you know, he he was very well read. He you know he he read. Uh, French uh, and English. He actually spent some time in America. He translated some English. He was very interested in what was going on in the global literary scene. He wrote a lot of essays and, and, and just cultural criticism that were published in Hong Kong. Um, and what's really interesting, I think, is that there is a, a clear sort of um, um, kinship, artistic kinship between Hesse and Xu Xu in um in their apparent preference for first person and at times, quasi autobiographical narrators. Uh, they both frequently make use of changing narrative perspectives that switch between first and second person narration. They both engage in their work with mythicism, spiritu- uh, spirituality, uh, the surreal. Uh, they celebrate it in their fiction and also in their poetry. Shushu also wrote a lot of poetry, the sublimity of love. Um, and then, you know, the image of the restless wanderer. Which, of course, is epitomized in Hesse's iconic Steppenwolf, um, really found its counterpart in many of Shu Xu Hong Kong stories. Um, you know, these these people stranded in Hong Kong, um, where they don't really feel they belong, and they, you know, they're driven by this yearning for for something else, for an, a world or a love lost. And you know, again, something that we see in in, in Bird Talk. Um, Now, this idea or this concept of transnational romanticism, transnational Chinese romanticism, is a concept I borrowed from uh, the critic and philosopher Michel Levy, a Brazilian uh, uh, literary critic, who has written on the global romantic revival in the 20th century, a book called um, Tide Against Romanticism, I think. (laughs) I'm blanking out on the title here. Uh, Levy you know, he believes that Romanticism really is a, a Weltanschauung or a worldview um, that may be expressed in quite diverse cultural realms, um, you know, many of which we haven't previously kind of included in, in in the canon of Romanticism. And I kind of argue in the afterward that Shushu's Xu fiction clearly possesses the virtues of enabling the critic to recognize the cultural multiplicity of Romanticism. Uh, that that Luvi kind of um, uh, mentions. Um, But, you know, to describe Xu Xu's aesthetics as a form of transnational Chinese romanticism really is is above all a, you know, a heuristic gesture. Romanticism, I think, uh, as a conceptual tool can help us discern the shared features and preoccupations of a set of 20th century texts that all respond to similar historical circumstances in similar ways. And it's through the lens of this redefined romanticism then that Shushu's work really partakes in what Levy describes as a highly diverse global literary modernity, and that Shushu's readers were and maybe still are able to find you know, metaphysical sanctuaries from their mundane existence and, and, and various challenges to their lives.
1: It, the prose is definitely gripping like you just forget about everything indeed uh, and just keep keep reading so it's um, yeah it's it's easy in a way to to see how um how this search for for expression and um also responding to to you know conditions on the ground um might might enable such conversations right um between authors and between uh, currents of thoughts, and um, I think that's more apparent in the writing than in the pictures. But then, the, the, <laughs> but then the book does have uh, it does include some pictures, right? Yeah, um, yeah, um,
2: yeah. D- do you mean the picture on the cover or the pictures in the book? Let, let, me, play. Okay. I, I, oh, <laughs> let me play. the cover. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the cover is a Japanese woodblock print by the late artist Kawano Kaoru. Yep. And when I first saw it, I could not believe how fitting a visual rendering of the story Bird Talk it was. And listeners probably now should pause and they should Google the book and take a look at the cover. Which it's amazing, is, yeah. It's a girl <laughs> sitting against a dark background and appearing to converse, you know, converse with a bright yellow bird that sits on her knees. And it it really captures the beauty and purity of this protagonist, this young girl. But you know, the sadness that permeates the story is also all in that image. Um, and, you know, I was able to track down the daughter of the artist, the artist passed away in the 60s, and I asked her whether I could use it for the book, and she was delighted. Uh, and she said, yes, please go ahead. I, I, You know, nothing would make me happier than to know that my father's work kind of lives on. So that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really... Um, excited about the cover but um, yes in the middle of the book there is a bunch of images um, that I'm equally excited about so the first one is a map of Shanghai from 1932 and in the um, you know on the side I kind of I I listed all the places that were mentioned in the different stories because the street grid of Shanghai was really important to Chinese modernist writers uh, of the 20s and 30s just you know just like this, the 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 grid of Berlin or Tokyo was important to modernist writers in Germany or Japan. Um, now the photos of Shushi are also very special. I I really wanted to have a photo from each creative period, precisely because, as we already discussed, you know the narrator in his stories is this, kind of always plays this trick on his his writers, and it's kind of almost quasi autobiographical. So I thought it would be nice to see. How Shushi maybe wanted to be seen himself or presented himself. So, um, and his daughter um, kindly gave me access to many of these personal photographs, most of which have never been published before. Um, but also, uh, you know, a manuscript. So there's a page from a manuscript with his handwriting that is reproduced, um, and you know, then some book covers and journal covers. And then there is a photo that I really like. That's a still from the movie Blind Love, Manglian. Um, that was filmed in 1955 that is based on a, um, on a short story of the same name. And Xu Xu actually had a role in that movie. Uh, he, he plays kind of himself at the begin at the opening of the movie, and he finds this manuscript that he then reads out to his friends, and the friends all turn out to be the cast of the movie. Um, and then you know that I, I reproduced a photo of him with the entire cast uh, of the movie. Uh, some of them, you know, like Luo Wei, Lili Li Hua, these are really, really famous stars um, who had come to Hong Kong from Shanghai, you know after the war, and who kind of were instrumental in, in you know, um, kind of getting the movie industry going in Hong Kong. And of course, Hong Kong later on really be- became the, the East Asian Hollywood. Um, and, and as I already said, several of his, his, his works were turned into, into movies. Um, and then there's uh, one <laughs> very special photo. You know, I really like ships um, of all kinds, and I was re- really excited to include an image of a ship, and this ship is the S.S. Conte Verde, um, which was an Italian liner uh, of the Italian Lloyd Triestino line, that ran a regular service from Trieste in Italy to Shanghai throughout the 1930s. And the photo shows uh, shows the Contevede moored quayside on the Huangpu River in Shanghai in the mid-1930s. And it's actually the ship that Xu Xu took uh, when he traveled to Europe in 1936, uh, and which is then the setting of the story, the Jewish Comet, uh, the story about the Jewish woman from Shanghai who together... Uh, with her Chinese lover, venture on this secret sabotage mission um, against Franco's fascist forces. Now, what's really interesting is that Jews um, actually formed a considerable contingent of foreigners living in Shanghai. Uh, Some of them were Baghdadi Jews who had come uh, with the British following actually the Opium Wars already in the late 19th century. And then others were Russian Jews who had fled the homeland following the, um, the revolution and the civil war. And then, um, you know, in the wake of Hitler's rise in Germany uh, and especially, you know, the violent kind of first anti-Semitic attacks, Night of Broken Glass of 1938, Shanghai uh, saw an influx of some 18,000 uh, 18, European Jews who fled, uh, you know, pros- uh, persecution in Germany and, and, and the territories that would soon fall under German control you know, since, so Shanghai had this, this peculiar international settlement in the center of the city, uh, which had been a product of the Opium Wars, which was sort of a semi-colonial self-controlled territory. So it was under foreign jurisdiction. Um, and, you know, this, this international settlement uh, was one of the only places in the world where you didn't need a visa. So if you could get To Shanghai, if you could get a a ship to Shanghai, you couldn't be turned back. So Shanghai became one of the last safe havens for Jews desperate to to, to leave Europe. And incidentally, this ship, you know, the Italian liner Conte Verde and the sister ship Conte Rosso that sailed from ports in Italy, that was, of course, an Axis uh, partner of Germany, so it was possible to go to Italy. They, they played a crucial role in helping many of those Jews reach Shanghai, um, and that's why I, want, <laughs> I wanted to include the <laughs> photo of the <this> ship.
1: <laughs> that's fascinating. It's um, and you know it does tell a story that somehow um, Shushu touches upon, right? So the the history of the the Jewish population in Shanghai, but you know it's it's kind of creeping into the story. But then with the picture, you can actually tell um, a more broader right. Um, kind of context, um, and also, you know, harken back to, to histories of connection and shipping and, you know, um, yeah, immigration and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know there's a lot to, to (laughs) say here, but, you know, I was wondering whether there's anything that you'd like to add that we have not touched upon so far.
2: Um, yeah, just a couple of things. Um, I mentioned that you know Shushi really was incredibly prolific. His complete works, when they were first published consisted of his fifteen volumes, and while most of it is fiction, several volumes are actually dedicated to poetry, drama, prose, essays, literary criticism. Um, and you know while I hope that my anthology provides a somewhat representative selection, at least of his fiction, it's you know by no means exhaustive. And what I regret a little bit is that I didn't include any. Poetry. Um, now, some of his poetry was actually translated by the late Kai Shu in his important anthology, 20th Century Chinese Poetry. And it's kind of funny. Kai Shu was the founder of the Chinese program at San Francisco State University, where I now teach. <laughs> so it's kind of, again, coming full circle. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but, you know, when Xu Xu was chairing, uh, he, he later chaired the Chinese program at ba- Baptist University in Hong Kong. And he started to write a history of 20th century Chinese literature, which he sadly could not complete because of his untimely death. So, um, you know, in a way, um, I really only show one facet of, of, of Xu Xu's work. And there's, you know, there's so much, so much more in a way to, to, this, to this writer and intellectual. Um, but I, I quickly wanted to follow up on, on an earlier question that you asked me, namely whether these stories are representative maybe of an entire generation, and whether they spoke and maybe still speak to readers. Um, You know, even though these stories are now well over 50 years old, most of them, they strangely, I think, still seem to resonate with readers. So uh, his complete works were actually just recently reissued in both China and Taiwan. Uh, and, And Xu Xu has seen a real resurgence and interest in, in, in the Chinese-speaking world. So Ghost Love was turned into a play in Shanghai a few years ago, into a chamber opera in Hong Kong. And then a couple of years ago, the famous uh, Shanghai writer Wang Anyi actually turned this spy novel, The Rustling Wind, Feng Xiao, into a play in Shanghai. So there's definitely something that still resonates with, with Chinese readers. And then... Um, you know, a couple of days ago, I read a review of my book um, by Isabella Jiang in the South China Morning Post, uh, a Hong Kong newspaper, uh, written, you know, in uh, uh, English language, uh, uh, Hong Kong newspaper. And the review was, was entitled "Bird Talk." In Shu Xu Shu's short stories, Hong Kong is a symbol of new beginnings in op- and opportunity. And what I thought was really interesting is that. You know, in her review, she makes every story, each of these five stories, somehow relevant to Hong Kong of today. She sort of makes a connection to, you know, the situation of Hong Kong today. And she kind of reclaims Xu, Xu for Hong Kong. And that's so interesting because Xu Xu himself never really felt at home in Hong Kong. And he did not like the city, and he didn't like its commercial culture, and he thought of it of a, as sort of a cultural desert. But at the same time, you know, Hong Kong was the only place where he could go. He was a writer who wrote in Chinese, who needed an audience. You know, he needed a readership, but he had fallen out of favor with his regime. You know, the new regime in, in Beijing in mainland China, he hated Chiang Kai-shek's regime in Taiwan. And, you know, he found he did find a home in Hong Kong. Um, so I, I think, you know, his fiction really speaks to readers who find themselves in a tight spot and who are in need of hope or solace or maybe just distraction. Um, you see, <laughs> Shishi's most famous literary work, his wartime spy novel, The Rustling Wind, was published amid the chaos of World War II, Um, And I think it really gives solace to his readers. And it's almost a strange coincidence that this English language debut now falls into the middle of a global pandemic. Yes. (laughs) Um, But it's also quite appropriate. As we discussed, his works often provided solace to his readers in times of hardship. And, um, you know, maybe these translations can achieve something similar uh, at this challenging moment. Um, I'd be humbled if they did if they provided some solace and entertainment to readers so <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure and you know it's um yeah the 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 whole book it's is just marvelous and um i full heartedly recommended to everybody uh, who wants to, to, to read and, you know, just find everything that you said, right? Either it's solace or it's, um, you know, just satisfying curiosity or, you know, kind of preparing to teach or anything, anything of that, or, you know, trying to find some sort of, um, you know, personal connection in time in troubled times, or, you know, just um, everything is there um, in, in, in the, the anthology um so i think we have taken a lot of your time and uh you know i i don't want to take more of it but before ending the interview i wanted to ask about what you're working on right now what are your current projects
2: oh well um <laughs> you know there's of course always more shushu to read <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> sure. at this time it's kind of I never get tired of reading him, but I think um, you know I I I also work on you know I like working on other things too. I've worked, uh, I've done a couple of projects that sort of took me uh, into the late um, Qing period. I've worked on poetry uh, from the late uh, late Qing that sort of um, was poetry um, that engaged with visual art, sort of the encounter uh, uh, of Chinese poets with Western painting. Um, uh, which is something that I I I was you know I I kind of would like to pursue a little further. But this interest in Qing dynasty poetry has <laughs> has then led me to nineteenth um, century poetry written in Chinese classical style poetry written in Chinese that was actually written by Japanese colonial officials uh, in Taiwan, uh, which is sort of my my newest project. I'm looking at these. Uh, classical style Chinese poems um, that were written by Japanese colonial officials in Taiwan at the beginning of the colonial period, uh, which is kind of ironic, which, you know, we sort of think of this as the beginning of um, kind of uh, Taiwanese modernity, right? The beginning of the colonial period, Japan bringing modernity to the island. But this first encounter with Taiwan was kind of processed by these Japanese officials by way of, classical Chinese prose, which they of course were all um, you know proficient in and and and, and, and knew how to write um, so that's a new project that i've I've actually just started so
1: fascinating that's amazing and I personally look forward to I'm sure the listeners as well are looking forward to reading you know that project <laughs> when it comes out um, and um, you know we I really look forward to to more work coming um, you know in translation or not from Shushu and you know from um, from from this analysis of of Japanese officials that uh, you are looking at. And with that, I want to thank you very, very much for talking to us today, Frederick, and wish you good luck with the new work.
2: Well thank you. It was a real pleasure and thank you for those great questions and and thanks for your time.
1: My pleasure, thank you.